I'm just worried that um, that this metaphor of GMOs for our industrial food system has has been in use for so long now that it's gotten stale. And um, you know what happens to a metaphor when it's no longer connected to the, the facts on the ground that it originally represented is that it becomes a cliche. It becomes meaningless, and it, it instead of um, enlightening our thinking, it takes us farther away from, from a reasonable discussion that can actually move us forward. That's Nathaniel Johnson of Grist.org talking to me about his excellent blog series on the GMO debate. And this is the Ruminant Podcast, a show that wonders what good farming looks like. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is a website for farmers and gardeners. Check it out on Facebook and at theruminant.ca. You can also email me, editor at theruminant.ca. Okay, let's go. Hey everyone, in a minute you're going to hear my conversation with this guy. My name is Nathaniel Johnson and I'm a journalist. I am the food and agriculture writer for grist.org and I live in Berkeley, California with my uh, small family. But before we get to that, right from its outset, the ruminant was intended to be a place for farmers and gardeners to share their ideas with each other. Over the years, I've had a number of great submissions, but I've also learned that busy farmers struggle to find the time to take photos of what they're doing and then send them along. So I'd like to try something different. I hereby invite you to make a quick phone call to Beverly Hills, California, to record a voicemail in which you tell me about something cool you're doing on your farm or in your farm business. I'm looking for the kinds of things you might tell a colleague when you're talking shop at a conference. I just bought a Skype number in Beverly Hills because there are no Skype numbers in Canada. Only you can prevent it from being the worst 35 bucks I ever spent. I hope you'll consider leaving a message. Something like this. Hey there, this is Jordan Marr with the Homestead Organic Farm in Peachon, BC. And I just thought I'd phone and talk about a couple tweaks we made to our CSA program that helped us get more customers. The first is to accommodate those who have the odd vegetable that they don't like. And, and that ends up being a stumbling block for committing to a program in which, for which we supply the veggies. Or sorry, choose the veggies. So a, a year uh, in our second year of our program, we just decided we'd allow every customer to name one veggie they never want to see in their weekly delivery. And all that it requires for us to do is to hire, harvest one extra bag of veggies and bring it along with us. And uh, when we deliver the customer's veggies, we simply switch out the, the veggie they don't want for a doubling up of something else that was harvested that week. And, and there we make them aware that they'll be getting a doubling up of something else. And uh, they seem to be fine with that. And it means they don't feel like they're wasting their money a little bit when they get a veggie they really hate. So that's one thing we did. And then uh, another thing we did to, to accommodate people is we tend to offer our program, however many weeks it is, say it's 18 weeks, we offer it over a 20 week period. And we allow every customer to postpone their delivery twice. And that accommodates those who, who inevitably go away in the summer. And again, the, the aim in both cases is just to, to be a little more flexible to try and increase the potential customer pool. So it's worked for us and I hope it works for you. Thanks a lot. I know you have something cool to share and I'd love to hear about it. So if you want to record a message for, for me to share on the podcast, here's the number. 310-734-8426. I hope to hear from you soon. Okay. So today's episode features my conversation with agriculture journalist Nathaniel Johnson of Grist.org. He recently wrote a really thorough series of blog posts for Grist in which he explores the GMO debate, and he recently joined me to talk about his findings. 
Nate's a really thoughtful guy. It's an interesting conversation, and I hope it spurs you to check out his series at Grist, which is called Panic-Free GMOs. One last thing, actually. For about the next 15 minutes, you'll hear Nathaniel and I talking mostly about his background and credentials, and also the process that he used to wade into this debate and conduct his his research and then write write his findings. I think it's really important, and that's why I've included in this conversation. But it is 15 minutes, and so it's about that much time before we get into the meat of the debate. So if you're in a hurry and you really just want to get into his findings, then then skip ahead to about uh, 21 minutes. That said, I hope you'll listen to the whole episode because I think the 15 minutes that follows really sets up the rest of the conversation. Nathaniel Johnson, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nathaniel, a little over a year ago now, you you did a series of blog posts uh, on on the genetically modified organism debate. And I'm not sure if right. it if you meant for it to get to a large series, but it it became uh, quite epic. It was it was a roughly 30 <laughs> posts that you wrote as you tried to essentially form a position on on the debate by by educating yourself. And uh, right. I thought it was a fantastic series of articles, and so that's why I've asked you on the show today, and I'm I'm really glad to have you. Um, but before we get started at talking about it. Um, I'd like to just start by establishing your credentials and your interests. So you've already given me a little bit of a bio about yourself. You work for Grist, um, but could you could you go back a little further? Am I right that you did some sort of journalism uh, internship with Michael Pollan? Kind of. I, I was writing um, for a small newspaper in, in southern Idaho, and I was covering um, a lot of these agricultural issues because that's a place where you have really big um, farms doing um, doing some some very intensive agriculture um, and and the cathos were just booming when I was there so so these giant uh, dairy farms and a couple hog farms were moving in and Idaho is a place that really prides itself on being libertarian not not having regulations um, and so I was kind of covering this and um, and in a very small town newspaper sort of way and not feeling like I was fully doing it justice. And I, and I was reading Michael Pollan's stuff um, and being like, here, here's a guy who's like, has this um, just kind of resounding clarity uh, covering some of these same issues um, in a really um, holistic way. And, and so I went to UC Berkeley graduate school of journalism from there um, largely to, you know, in an attempt to work with Michael Pollan, he, he just started there. Um, so I, I ended up doing my master's thesis with him and, um, I, I respect and admire him a lot and, um, hope that I've gleaned some of his, um, some of his skills. And, but it does sound like you were a journalist, uh, quite a long time before that. Is that right? I started, I mean, I got, I graduated from, college undergrad in 2001 and so I was working I got this job at this small town newspaper in southern Idaho uh, in 2001 and worked for a couple of years before going to grad school and were, were you interested in in issues of food security right away or did that that did that come a little bit later you know it it, it was just something that I was covering I was interested in the environment, you know, I growing, I grew up in this small sort of hippie town in, in Northern California and, um, was always kind of environmentalist. 
Um, and the, I hadn't really thought of food as part of that, um, that much until I got to this newspaper and was, was covering these issues and saw that, you know, how profoundly food was, um, affecting the ecosystem there and the, the human ecosystem as well. Um, and so it's just sort of something that, that I've fallen into, um, you know, my, I, I, I've always been interested in farming. You know, I'm the, I'm the first generation that, you know, my, my father, my grandfather grew up on a farm, my father, and then my grandfather was working for the USDA and, um, you know, the state department food for peace program. So it was kind of in, in agriculture and had a big market garden with a couple hogs and stuff. And so my father kind of grew up, you know, drinking raw goat's milk and stuff. Um, so, so I had this very romantic conception of farming um, as a kid growing up because I was kind of the first one that, that didn't have that. Um, so I was always interested in, I guess, but I wasn't, uh, I hadn't really connected food security and food issues with environmentalism. Right. So that tended to happen more and more as you just, as you as you got into your journalism career then. Yeah. I just found myself kind of gravitating to these stories that um, were at the nexus of food and environment and health. Okay. And then, so what you eventually completed this graduate in journalism, you had some mentorship from, from Michael Pollan among others. Um, can you talk a little bit about Grist? Like w- just if you had to summarize Grist as a, as a website, what, what, what could you say? Sure. So Grist is a uh, green news site. It's a, a website that produces news blogs, um, and the focus is on uh, the environment. And um, it's we try and we try and be a little bit um, whimsical in our coverage. The you know the tagline is is doom and gloom with a sense of humor. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit different from the old school, um, shame and, and, and ruining the day sort of environmental journalism. Um, and it, it was one of the original, I think it started back in 2000, um, 2001, maybe as an email newsletter, so, you know, fairly early in the, in the history of the web, um, so it was one of the, these original news outlets that that's online and has just continued to um, to do that. And it's um, it's a nonprofit. You know, it's it's supported mostly by uh, foundations, environmental organizations, and the like. Well, well, on, the, on that note, and given the topic we're about to parse, I will. I I really think I should ask you: Are you or is Grist a shill for corporate interests? <laughs> um. <laughs> Certainly not. Um, you know, it's something that I I take very seriously, um, and there there may be cognitive biases that have unintentionally um, aligned me with with corporate interests. But um, you know, I have never received money from agribusness um, or a related organization, and um, to my knowledge, Grist has not either. Right, and. I mean, I asked that half jokingly. I, I I think Grist is a is a great site, and I just don't have any sense that you had any agenda heading into this this writing project that you did. Right. I I, I tried to, I tried to be very clear about you know my my agenda you know and my 
and upfront about my biases and the way that my mind was uh, set going into it and, and how it changed along the way. Right. Okay. Well, well, on that note, let's, let's talk about your, your writing. So, so I think, I think I better start by asking you, uh, Nathaniel, what, what led you to take it on? Why did you want to tackle this, the, the, the GMO debate? Well, I didn't. (laughs) Um, I'd, I'd actually thought about doing it for my book. I'd written this book called all natural, um, which is, um, I, I'm telling stories from my very all natural hippie family and upbringing and talking about the the things that I grew up with, like natural births and alternative medicine and all these various um, dietary fads that we'd, uh, we'd gone through. Um, and, um, and then going back and, and kind of fact checking and trying to do a rigorously scientific look at all these things that was also really loving and, and holistic and not, not simply dismissive of these things. And I, I thought, you know, GMOs seemed like a good fit for this. This is this thing where it's like, um, this, this technology that kind of, um, hits the same alarm bells that, that many of the people who are interested in those other issues that I just mentioned, um, are, are worried about. Uh, but it was just like so technically complex and, um, and the details were kind of boring, I thought. And um, I saw very clearly that it was so partisan and, and polarized that it was going to be really hard to wade my way through. Um, and there, I didn't see any clear narrative through line where there's just like, you know, someone's story that I could tell that would really carry this um, debate. And so I, I, I abandoned it. Um, the real reason that I ended up doing this for grist is that my um, editor assigned it to me. You know, I, he, I got hired after my book came out and he said, I'd really like you to look closely at, at GMOs. And this is something that we've just kind of um, have, haven't known what to think about. And so can you just take a close look at the details of what's going on with this and um, just kind of blog as you go, do a little research, write up what you're, you find, um, react to um, people making corrections or making comments and and just go from there. And say, oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> and so that, that, that's the genesis of the series. One thing you mentioned in your very first post in the series that stuck out for me is, is you said that you thought humility was required in taking this whole project on. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant? Well, I, I forget exactly exactly what I meant in that uh, first um, instance, um, but certainly humility is um, is something that's really important to me. I think as a reporter, um, my job is to go out and and learn stuff and not to cling to my positions, but instead to change my positions and to um, to enrich my perspective and um, strengthen it by by incorporating new information that comes to me. So I, I, I probably um, was talking about that. Right. And one last question before we actually talk about your series. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach your research? Yeah, sure. That's, um, I think that's a really important question, actually. Um, I... It, it kind of changed as it went along, but I started out by asking people um, 
I knew that other other people who've looked at uh, GMOs, like who are the who who are people that won't lead me into deep water on this? Who are people that are credible and relevant and smart? And um, and I got uh, several suggestions and um, and started and I, I figured I would break it up and and look at one thing at a time. Um, because what I found from the very beginning is I try and pin, you know, pin down one piece of information and it's, and I just sort of be trying to like, what are you telling me here? Can, is this right or is this wrong? You know, this other person is contradicting what you're saying. Can you speak to that? And people would, would sort of answer, but then they'd like quickly pivot to another subject. You know, there's, there's so many things to talk about on GMOs and they'd sort of say, well, yes, but, you know, and then they'd be off talking about, um, um, insects getting resistance to ET toxin or what have you. Um, so, so my idea was that I would take kind of one step at a time and look closely at it and try and just figure out what was going on with that and see if I could figure out, um, the places where people on both sides actually agreed. You know, if I could get someone on the pro GMO side to say like, well, yes, actually the antis have a point here. Then I'd be like, okay, well this, here's, here's something that I can really hold on to that here's a here's a building block you know that i can start to build this edifice on because here's here's a point of factual agreement and so i was trying to find um uh, do some findings of, of fact um and start with that and then after after i built that up um be able to make some kind of judgment on it Right. And, and you certainly did have to, you ended up chasing, there were just wormhole after wormhole or, or, or whatever yeah. in, in this. And I was boggled by how many experts you consulted. I mean, you must have spent, your must, must have been your life for those few months. Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> um, and, and it was, um, you know, there was just tremendous pressure too, because I was doing it, you know, the internet is such a crazy place. And this is kind of my first job I've had on where I'm on the internet and some people, and people are, are incredibly combative and angry on the internet. And this, certainly this issue um, punches so many buttons that um, I got, a, I got a lot of flack from the very beginning and I was really trying to read it all, you know, to be, to actually be like, okay, this, there's going to be some useful stuff here. You know? And so I would get these like horribly abusive emails being like, first of all, you are just a naive idiot. And secondly, I think you should read these seven studies, you know, that I'm attaching <laughs> and be like, okay, thank you, kind sir. Um, actually, you know, I'm not going to have an emotional reaction to this. There's actually something useful that I can get from this, maybe. Um, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're seeing something that I've missed. Um, and and I, that was the case sometimes. Um, so, But at one point you mentioned so that yeah, you, you had intended to, to sort of – uh, well, certainly participate in in the comment forums and everything, but in the end, there was so much vitriol and just so much volume. Some of those posts had hundreds of comments that you just you couldn't do it. Thousands, even, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that was um, I had to abandon ship. <laughs> well, okay, so we, I think we've got all the all the precursor stuff behind us. Um, but the thing is, we can't we can't possibly explore this topic with the nuance that you did in your blog series, Nathaniel. Um, so instead, sure. we're going to touch on some of your your conclusions about the subtopics and kind of the overall topic. 
Um, and hopefully we can encourage some listeners to check to check out the series. And really briefly, I'll say that there's two ways to, in, to my mind to go about that. You can start at post one and, and read all 30 odd posts, uh, which which uh, when I did it for the second time yesterday took me, I don't know, two to three hours. And it was really fascinating reading. Or you could start near the end and, and towards the end of, of um, your series, Nathaniel, you kind of do uh, one, it's like the penultimate post summarizes all the major subtopics and kind of just gives your quick conclusion that you made on each topic with ref with links to more uh, nuance. And then your, your, right. your last post, uh, is kind of a, a summary of your overall conclusion that we're going to talk about. There, there are technically a couple posts after that. Uh, but those were kind of came after the fact and, and featured a couple of different voices as well. But, but, uh, people could, could start there exactly. as well if they want to get to information or your conclusions on specific subtopics. So um, I recommend people check it out. And the other thing they can search, I mean, I'm going to have it up with the uh, show notes on my site. But uh, if you Google panic-free GMO and grist, you'll get, you'll get the page that has the, the chronological order of all the blog posts. So that's a really easy way to check it out. Anyway, right. Nathaniel, uh, I, think, I think we're going to just, just uh, touch on a lot of these subtopics. But I, the, the one that I expect we'll go into a little more detail about is the first one I want to talk about, which is effects of GMOs on human health. Because um, okay. I think that's probably the overarching concern. Um, right. So I'm going to start with a quote from one, if you're not your first post, then your second. Um, and so I'll quote you now, quote, I'm going to start with the most politicized issue. Is there any evidence that genetically modified food is directly harmful to people who eat it? There's a one word answer to this. End quote. Nathaniel, what's your one word answer to that question? Well, I, I believe it was no with the, <laughs> what I said at that point. Um, I, I think that, yeah, and, and the key is that I'm saying there is there evidence. And, and the reason that I stated that so strongly is that I went, you know, I, I went and I talked to um, people on, on the anti side and people who, you know, wouldn't classify themselves as anti-GMO, but are, have generally um, been on, among those that are um, campaigning for more regulation and are worried about them. Um, and, and those people were telling me that, that no, there isn't uh, evidence that they're, um, they're harmful. And, and furthermore, that, you know, people like Margaret Mellon from the Union of Concerned Scientists were saying, you know, this does not, I'm not worried about the GMOs that we currently have out there. That, that, that doesn't keep me up at night. And there, you know, there are other things that there are new GMOs coming online um, that, that uh, she says need to be evaluated. Um, but I think that that's, that is one of those points that everybody, like all reasonable people kind of agree on that there, there really isn't evidence that they're, um, they're causing harm to human health. The ones that we have out there now, maybe we'll, we'll make one further on that, that really does some damage. <laughs> right. So, and so wrapped up or, or what contributes to, to you forming that conclusion, uh, is the fact that, that we just, there isn't a lot of evidence that, that anyone has been harmed in terms of their health. Uh, and that, um, there isn't really all that much significant difference between genetic modification and other forms of breeding that we, that, that, that aren't causing harm to people. 
Do I have that about right? Yes. I mean, I think that it's, um, it's important because this is, this is one of those issues that people, it's like, um, it's very hard to, uh, it's very hard to conceptualize. The way I'd put it is that, um, we should look at transgenesis, you know, the moving of, of um, DNA from one organism to another species that it's not related to um, in the scope of, of all the other technologies that we've introduced to our food system and ask um, how, much, how much evidence have we demanded um, for all of these things, you know, for all these innovations. Um, how much do we need? We should at least have some kind of level playing field for, for different things that we introduce. Um, and when you look at GMOs, they've gotten a lot more uh, study from good independent public scientists um, than almost any other, um, any other innovation that we've seen in our, in our food system. And that includes things that are modifying genes of, of plants. Um, you know, there's this, this example that you hear a lot um, and that I talk about of mutagenesis, which is um, mutating uh, the DNA using um, radiation um, or chemicals. And there's, there's more chance of something going wrong or um, producing a result that, that wasn't intended with that. And yet this is something that there's, there's not the same kind of controversy or um, attention to or, um, or fur about. Um, so there's, and, and that's just one example. There's, there's, you know, when you look at the, all of the crazy things that uh, we've been doing to, um, to improve the efficiency of, of seeds over the years, um, to me, transgenesis doesn't look like a, like a huge, hugely different uh, step. And you end up pointing out it just it sort of depends on your level on one's level of risk tolerance. But that overall, um, the science that you investigated and you did so quite exhaustively shows that the overall risk uh, to human health of GMOs is is actually uh, quite reasonable, like quite re- relatively low. Yeah, that's that was that's the conclusion that um, I came to, and you know, the, there's there's a lot of um, major scientific organizations that have looked into this in in depth and really gone through the entire literature and done the you know the risk analyses and um, and came to the same conclusion. You know, when I was I was looking at it and trying to like figure out what do I say about this, I was like. You know, I read the the one from the U.S. Um, National Academy of Science, and I said, okay, well, that's, you know, it's kind of hard to go against them, but maybe, you know, maybe there's something here that they're not seeing. Um, and then and, and then you see the, the Royal Society and um, just one major scientific institution after another um, with these really well-respected um, scientists um, running them. Uh, coming to this conclusion over and over again, and and I'm just I, I feel it necessary to repeat because I know I know a lot of uh, listeners are going to be um, just like 
spitting frothing from the mouth right now but but there's a lot of nuance in your pieces and i really encourage them to read everything that went into you forming this conclusion i have to say that that this is the same position that that i hold um and i this is the one i wanted to go into in a bit because i really feel like and 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 i've been influenced by your own writings but but i this i came to some degree i came to this conclusion myself as well um i just i feel like if if we could get past this issue if if (laughs) if those on either side of the debate could at least agree on this, suddenly I think the rest of the subtopics, like the other concerns about GMOs, it becomes much, I, I think it it's it suddenly becomes much easier to have a reasonable, calm debate. I, I think this health one is the one that freaks people out and, and causes a lot yeah. of the animosity and vitriol, personally. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that there is another one, um, which is this fear that um, that something will go terribly awry and you'll have, um, you know, this self-reproducing organism that, that will bring about ruin to our, our biosphere, um, that, you know, it'll just go out of control. Um, there, and I, you know, I think that there are a lot of people that feel this sort of same gut horror at, that we're, we're altering life that is reproducing and um, and that has the potential to to for catastrophe in a way that we haven't um, haven't risked before, um, you know. I and so I I think I, I understand those those perspectives, and I you know it's it's I, we we could debate them at length, um, but it's it's hard to um, to to push past it because it's. I think that if you if you really firmly have like this this feeling that that, it, that this is just a fundamental threat to Mother Nature or to um, human health and, and life and happiness on Earth, um, it's really hard to hear anything else. You know that I, I try and say in a kind of um, cool, rational like let's let's just talk about the facts um, type of way. Right. So, so Nathaniel, um, I want to talk, I want I'm going to touch on what you just said in a little bit, but now, uh, I, I, if we, if, if I'm in a, I'm in an attempt to take, to take, to have you take us through the rest of the topics you covered quite quickly. I mean, if okay. you think about the post you did, the penultimate post where you really just provided short answers to these questions with links to the nuance. I'm asking for those short yeah. answers. And then, I mean, if you feel like elaborating a bit, that's fine. But uh, um, yeah, uh, because people, I, there's no way, the, the proper way to do this is to read your writing. We're not going to get it, get through it uh, here. So uh, I have essentially five more major questions that you asked that I'm going to ask you to, to, to answer if you can. Great. So the, the next one then, are GMOs unregulated? Um, no, they're not unregulated. They're, they're fairly highly regulated. Um, Monsanto pushed for uh, regulation uh, in part because they knew that it would prevent uh, other competitors from, from rising up. There's this thing that you see over and over again with, you know, once you have the first corporation break in, um, then they want the regulations because that stops the other people. They, they, they um, want those barriers to entry for others. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and, and they also knew that it would help with them with, with PR, you know, that, that people were concerned about this and they, they wanted the, um, the regulations. And so they said, okay, let's, let's try and try and do this. Um, so, and, and there is a fairly significant testing regime that they, they have to go through, um, with the, the EPA and the, the, the environmental protection agency and the, um, agriculture department and the, um, the FDA. And I know there's a lot of people who fig who think that whole process is all a sham and I'll just, I'll just, I'll have to leave it at you. You, you, you really explored that. You, you had a lot to say about that. And so people can go check it out if they want. Um, yeah. next, next topic then are GMOs bad for the environment? It's very complicated. Um, there's, there's a few main things that are going on with GMOs. They, um, influence use of insecticide, they influence use of herbicides, um, and um, some, other, some other minor things, but the herbicide and insecticide are the main thing. Um, it's pretty clear, you know, this is again one of those things that people from both sides agree, that there's been a real reduction in insecticide use because of the use of uh, genetically modified crops. Um, both sides also agree that there's been a big increase in the use of herbicides because of genetic, genetically modified crops. Um, and that's really all um, glyphosate, which is, which is Roundup. Um, and the, the, the trick is when you look at glyphosate, it's a much less toxic herbicide than some of the herbicides that are replaced. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's, you can go much deeper into this. There's, um, we see resistance developing um, to both um, the the insecticide reducing GMOs and the herbicide tolerant GMOs. Um, so this may be a this may not last forever. Um, and and there's also the, the fact that the herbicide resistant GMOs have been so effective, you know, allowing the use of these, these herbicides, um, that effective weed control has created, you know, effective weed control is what farmers try and do, but that's created a problem of its own um, in that some of the biodiversity that was just there in the fields via the weeds um, has been reduced. And um, this is one of the things that um, seems to be really impacting the um, the butterflies, the monarch butterflies, uh, because there's not as much milkweed in the Midwest anymore. So overall, I mean, well, there was, a, I mean, there was a ton of detail there too, but it, it was kind of, it's, it's been kind of a mixed bag with regards to the environment, some, some positives and, and some negatives. Uh, that, that, that's a topic yeah, definitely worth exploring in your series, uh, just because there's so much to say. Uh, so, so the next yeah. question, who benefits from GMOs? So, um, this is something that there's been, you know, economists have done studies on this and figured out, you know, who's, who's gotten the benefit. Um, most of the money has gone to seed companies like Monsanto. Monsanto is the biggest one. Um, they're the innovators. They've, they've done the, the research, although, you know, there's public scientists also who um, are responsible for a lot of this research who uh, have certainly not seen their fair share of the, the benefit. Um, uh, and then farmers have seen some benefit. Um, there's some of the money has, has gone to farmers. And then there, there is a little bit of um, 
benefit to consumers. You know, prices have dropped uh, slightly because of DMOs, you know, when you do the whole econometric analysis. Um, but it doesn't look like it's enough that we'd really notice it. Um, you know, and, and if they suddenly went away, uh, we probably, you know, we probably would only have a subconscious reaction to the, the price increase. And then I guess a sub sub question there or subtopic of that is, I mean, one one big concern that gets repeated a lot is the effect on um, small scale farmers or just farmers in general in developing countries. And and yeah. GMOs have even been linked to increase in suicide rates among farmers because of the crippling debts they take on. Um, right. You know, you you also explored that that issue. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think that the the real issue here is um, is debt. You know, that these these small farmers um, in developing countries are often in in pretty dire situations and and willing to bet a lot um, on trying to trying to become prosperous and make a better life for their family. And so, so sometimes they, they go into extreme debt, um, buying seeds, buying um, tools for their farm. And then if, if something goes wrong and, and they, you know, just the weather goes wrong and they lose the harvest, um, they, they are in a really dire situation. Now, from from my research, um, I, I'm really skeptical of the claim that GMOs have caused um, farmers to commit suicide. Um, there certainly are farmer suicides, but when you look at the the timing of the introduction of GMOs and the the rates of farmer suicides, you know it just it doesn't it doesn't really work out. You know the the, the the GMOs are introduced and the farmer suicides kind of flatline. They don't they don't bump up. And there's also um, you know these these big studies. The Lancet has done a couple looking at suicide in India. It's, it's really a serious problem just across the board, and it's not simply constrained to farmers. You see this. You see more suicides, um, a greater percentage uh, suicides and people in other professions. Um, and so, you know, I think, I really think that this has to do with, um, with poverty, um, rather than, um, rather than with this technology, uh, driving, driving these people into the ground. Um, now the question is, is it, is this technology saving them? You know, are they, are they right to bet on it? Um, and, the evidence there also is is not you know the, the pro GMO people will will trumpet that very loudly and say that if you're anti GMO you should be tried for crimes against humanity. I don't see really solid evidence that it's um, it's the thing that's saving small farmers. I think it's it certainly helped certain small farmers, but um, it's it's really hard to tease out whether those are the farmers that were already rich um, or, you know, relatively rich in their villages um, or whether they're, they're the truly desperate people who are, who are made a little bit more affluent by this technology. Well, I would, I have more, I want to ask you about that, but that's the case with all of these. So we're going to, I'm going to move on again. <laughs> right. um, so Nathaniel, do we need GMOs to feed the world? 
I don't think so. Um, you know, I do worry about um, cutting off too many technologies. You know, sometimes when I hang out with my environmentalist friends, I feel like, um, you know, it's, there's this, well, we just need better solar power. We just need better this or that. Um, but then also there's this sense of like, well, but we don't want, we don't want, we've got to regulate um, these companies that are innovating on these things much more heavily. And we've got to um, make sure that they don't use any risky chemicals. And it's like, at some point, at some point, something has to give, right? You can't have, you can't have these new technologies and, um, and cut off all of the, um, the options. But I think if we just, if, if, you know, if it's just the question that you're asking, um, I think we'd be fine. You know, we, we pivot. There are many other technologies and breeding techniques that are much more important than transgenesis. Um, and, um, I, I'm sure that we could do well without them. I mean, the, the other thing to note is that, you know, feeding the world, it, this has been said many times, but I think it's, it's worth repeating, um, is at this point, it's not a production issue. It's, it's distribution. Um, there's enough. Yeah. It's a distribution issue and it's a, it's a equity issue, a human rights issue. The, the problem here is poverty. It's, we have more than enough food to go around, um, but we have inequality and um, some people get lots and lots, you know, especially us in North America and we waste it and um, the rest of the world gets, gets very little. And, you know, that's, that's always how capitalism has, has worked. Uh, you know, there's, there's no easy fix to that, but, um, but that's, that's the fundamental problem that we, I think we really need to be focused on, um, and these these other issues of you know we do I think we do need to increase production and increasing production can help small farmers it can help with uh, poverty. Um, but do we need GMOs to feed the world? Uh, again, there's a simple answer to that question, and that's no. And and you also you spend a fair bit of time also kind of exploring what I'll just call the fact that. Uh, for over the last 20 years, the, the companies or the, the greatest advocates of GMOs have spent um, a lot of time s- selling their concept to the public on this notion that, that they, there's just so many great innovations for humanity that can be achieved with them. But that in practice, um, one thing many critics of GMOs have pointed out, which you, I think you tend to, to support or, or, or agree with, is that, there's, that on the ground there's been very little beyond just those those um herbicide and 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 uh herbicide and, and pesticide tolerant crops they're they're they, they gmos Absolutely. haven't delivered on on all these uh pie in the sky promises yeah there's there's just been a few things that you know this has been a really difficult technology to use um and to to figure out and so it only makes sense for these companies to do the things that um, they can sell to wealthy farmers really, and they can sell at scale. Um, so that's, that's what they've done. Um, and they, you know, they also, it's also moving to India and to other places around the world. Um, so it's, you know, that's, it's not entirely true, but most of what this has done is helped, um, 
conventional industrial farmers um, farm a little bit more efficiently. And I, I think it's really worth asking, you know, if you make a, a system that is is dirty and broken a little bit more efficient, is that uh, really an unmitigated good? <laughs> right. So, Nathaniel, yeah. should we label GMO foods in the grocery store? I, you know, this is a tough one. I, I think that we should. Um, and, um, you know, I, I guess I should say a word about um, this because it may be counterintuitive to people and people say, like, of course, like, why don't we want to know um, what's in our food? And, and the danger here is just that it, it will end up being this kind of health washing label where, you know, you have no GMOs on things that, and it doesn't really mean anything that people, you know, see it. And it's like, you know, your heart healthy sugar bomb cereals, you know, that um, they're heart healthy because they have uh, a little bit of oats in them or like something they see like the that. Cheerios that say GMO um, and, but then they see the fruit loops that, that say GMO free. So they go for the fruit loops kind of right, thing. Exactly. Exactly. Although Cheerios are now GMO free. <laughs> I know, but I, I guess Cheerios. I could have chosen another, <laughs> another one. <laughs> um, you know, and they, I, I do think that if the labeling laws are passed and, you know, they have been passed in, in Vermont, if they, if they stand up, um, that you'll, you'll just see everything getting labeled, you know, may contain um, GMOs just as sort of a cover your ass strategy because, because these supply chains, you know, things get mixed up and it's really hard to uh, segregate and, and be totally sure that you didn't get uh, sugar from GMO beets and in your sugar mix. Um, so, you know, it'll just kind of be everywhere and then you'll still have like the, basically the organic things and things that already have the, non-GMO labels on them or the organic labels on them um, that are, are GMO free. But despite that, I, I think that it, it may be the right thing to do because this debate has just gotten so toxic that, um, that I think we need a pressure release valve. And the thing about um, GMOs is it's, it's just based on this, we have this fear um, based on the, this unknown. We don't really know what it is. There's this, we as eaters don't see a benefit from it. So there's no real incentive to go out and research it. And so it's just kind of this looming unknown that uh, why should I, why should I assume any marginal iota of risk for something that's not benefiting me, but is, um, benefiting Monsanto. And so if we, if it was just kind of out in the open there, I think it would do away with that kind of cloud of darkness. And you could just say, okay, this, uh, this has GMOs in it. I can make a choice for myself, whether, you know, is that the fact that it's maybe a little bit less money? Um, it's like, there's, it's just like kind of a sense among a lot of people, you think that there's just like a lack of control in their life, that sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And you see, you know, this is a, a real problem with the, the modern condition, you know, as we um, outsource more and more of our lives to, to machines and people overseas doing it more efficiently, you know, there's this sort of feeling like, okay, what, how do I know if I can trust this or not? And, and um, 
you know, I, I'm torn on this because I would really like it to just be like, let's just look at the facts and let's um, figure this out. But I do think that um, it would be useful just to, just to say, okay, fine, let's la- let's label everything and, and people can just make their choice then. Um, yeah. So that kind of takes us through my notes on those topics. I realize as I talk to you right now that I didn't include a question about intellectual property, and I'll just uh, I'll assure listeners that that you you go you deal with that in depth as well. I'll also say uh, okay. once again that uh, if there's anyone who's frustrated right now uh, at how uh, casually we've treated these topics, the whole my whole intention here is to is to point people to these articles, and they can go and find out lots more information. Um, so that's all the listeners are going to get uh, on the actual, um, topics that you covered for, for this episode. But I now just want to deal a little bit with your, uh, conclusions. Um, mm-hmm. so you, you do have a final post that ties everything together and, and you're, the conclusion you came to <laughs> was a bit of a non sequitur, um, essentially, <laughs> and I realize you were writing this somewhat with tongue in cheek, but yeah. <laughs> What you started your final post by saying that that after all of this and months spent researching this stuff, you've you'd come to the conclusion that none of it matters. What did I, you mean, Nathaniel? Um, well, what I mean what I meant by that is that um, that if you if you take away uh, GMOs, if you're somehow able to wave a wand and, and disappear them from our world. Um, some things would change, but I think the really important things that people are concerned about wouldn't change. You know, this wouldn't disrupt um, big monoculture, um, industrial agriculture. Uh, it was never foundational for industrial agriculture, and um, and it'll do just fine without without transgenesis. Um, it, you know, there, if they disappeared, there would be some pluses for the environment. We'd use less um, herbicide and um, there would be, or we'd at least use less glyphosate and there would be less glyphosate um, resistance in weeds. Um, but people would use other more toxic um, herbicides too. Um, and we we'd start seeing the resistance in those weeds too. It's actually, you know, with the, the heavy use of glyphosate, there's, um, uh, we've seen less than the projected um, resistance in, in those other herbicides. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but the, the point is that we kind of expect weeds to gain resistance to herbicides, you know, on a, on a kind of linear fashion, depending on how much herbicides are used. And because everybody switched over to, to Roundup and glyphosate, um, they weren't using uh, the other herbicides. And, and so there's less, less, re- less resistance um, to those, those guys. Um, you know, there would be, uh, Monsanto would, would make a lot less money um, but there would still be plenty of other giant corporations, um, you know, with really uh, rapacious um, intellectual property rights practices like Apple, for instance, um, out there. And I, I think that, you know, the, the bigger point is that there's all of these issues that kind of um, 
go off like the spokes of a wheel from GMOs. And GMOs are the touchstone that people kind of associate with all of these things. But you take them away and, and the wheel still stands. You well, know? I, I think and you so, summed it up really nicely with this, with the following quote, which is what you, which you, you this is something you said in, in, presenting a scenario where GMOs are banned, a magical scenario. And you said, quote, the banning yeah. of GMOs hasn't led to a transformation of agriculture because GM seeds was never a linchpin supporting the conventional food system. Farmers could always do fine without it. End quote. So, right. so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so that's, so, so, so that's half of what, of your, of your assertion that none of it matters. You, you present this scenario where, where in the industrial system would go march right along and with all kinds of terrible effects that, that people are well, well aware of. You then say, let's right. look at the other scenario where resistance to GMOs completely dissolves. Um, right. And so can you comment on that? So in that scenario, we, we, yeah, in that scenario, we'd, we'd see um, more herbicide and we'd see more herbicide resistance. Um, that would become uh, a bigger problem sooner. Um, we'd see less insecticide use. Um, we'd see more of these um, biotechnologists coming up with, with interesting new solutions um, that right now it's, you know, people are really, um, hesitant to, to try and put something out on the market because there there is so much fear and and uh, resistance of of these technologies. Um, so we'd we'd have more um, tools to be working with. I you know I'd sort of like to see um, I'd be interested in seeing tools for organic agriculture, for instance, um, coming out of biotechnology. Um, I, I know that would be a hard one to swallow for, for many people, but um, and. Uh, but you know, I don't think that they would they would really prove transformative either. That it you know we'd we'd still be faced with these fundamental big picture problems of reforming the food system, and um, and feeding our families in a way that's um, good for the planet. Um, and and I think that these are really social issues rather than technological issues. Um, so, 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 I mean, so essentially in that of, scenario, you're, yeah, you're pointing out that GMOs are not the agricultural panacea that, that some have promised. And so just, just because right. there was free reign to, to use them, that's not going to, to affect us all that much. That's that. I think that that's absolutely true. That, um, and, and the, you know, what this all kind of leads to is then like, well, what about all of these other issues that I, uh, that, that I've, we've just talked about in length, you know? Um, and I think that, that those issues, um, need to be looked at directly, you know, that we, we really do need, um, reform. I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but in the U S you know, our intellectual property rights, our patent system is just a mess. Like everybody agrees that it's, it's just stupid. Um, and we need um, to figure out better ways of, of doing agriculture, um, you know, to solve, to use Wes Jackson's words, to solve the problem of agriculture that we've, we've just been bumbling along trying to get right since, um, since we started with this in the Fertile Crescent. Um, and, and every, I think you can sort of do that with every one of these issues. And, and for none of these things is, is GMOs, um, the, the linchpin, the deciding 
force one way or the other. So you go on to say in your conclusion, Nathaniel, uh, I'm going to quote you again, uh, quote, the anthropologist Glenn Davis Stone has pointed out that each side of the debate has agreed to talk about GMOs as if GMOs are a single entity up for approval or rejection, end quote. Um, people, people use GMOs as a yeah. stand and they use it as a metaphor and, or sorry, I'm, I'm now mixing a couple messages you had, but essentially they just see GMOs as this, this, this one monster rather than looking at each GMO technology separately. You see that right. as problematic. Yeah. Yeah, of course, because there's, I mean, um, I think that if we were to decide as a society, like, do we want or not want, um, each one of these things, you know, I think that we'd probably say, yeah, I think we do want um, disease-resistant papaya. Um, I think on balance, that's been a really good thing. And um, these disease-resistant cassavas that they're um, developing for Africa and, um, uh, you know, they're, they're this, there's this list uh, that are useful, I think. Um, Herbicide-resistant soy, well maybe maybe not it's much more much more complex and um and i could i could very easily see um simply simply saying no to that one um so so they do need to be divided and then yeah and then there's this the issue of of gmos as a metaphor which is sort of something that i was somewhat inarticulately um grinding my way toward so nathaniel overall what you get to in towards the end of your concluding posts is that you don't really think this debate is is about is actually about genetically modified organisms. You suggest it's about the stories we've attached to them. We've touched on that a bit already, but but can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, that's exactly right. That we've attached these stories about um, a technological utopia resulting from these uh, seeds or these stories about hubris and sort of the Frankenstein story um, attached to these seeds. And um, I think that the, the, that's a really important discussion to have. And it's hard to talk about without having some kind of example to, to use to talk about it. And, and GMOs are a, a really good example. It's one that um, we've been using for 30 years, but I think over that time, over those, those 30 years that we've been debating this, um, the, the sort of big ideas um, that we're debating have occluded and, and pushed away the facts on the ground. And, um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm all for um, using metaphors and for, um, for, you know, you can't organize a movement around, you know, just kind of vague ideas about um, reforming agriculture. You you have to have you know, one kind of rallying point to, to bring people in. And I think that's totally understandable. I'm just worried that, um, that this metaphor of GMOs for our industrial food system um, has, has been in use for so long now that it's gotten stale and, um, you know, what happens to a metaphor when, um, when it's no longer connected to the, the facts on the ground that it originally represented is that it becomes a cliche. It becomes meaningless. And it, it instead of um, enlightening our thinking, it takes us 
farther away from from a reasonable discussion that can actually move and forward. distracts us. I guess I've seen you argue elsewhere that it distracts us from some other issues that are are very very important, and also there's a lot more potential to deal with them. Yeah, I am I am dismayed by the amount of political capital that's getting poured into um, GMO labeling. Um, you know, it's fine. It's like, I'm, I'm, as I've said, I'm pro labeling, but, um, I just, I, every time I see, you know, the dollar amounts that are spent and, um, and just all of this energy with workers going out and volunteering and writing things on Facebook and the rest, I'm, you know, if we could channel that into, um, into climate change action, or if we could channel that into, um, a push for um, better use of fertilizers on industrial farm uh, so they're not polluting so much. Um, you know, if we could channel that into, um, into people actually being willing to pay a fair price for uh, a farmer's work who's actually doing good stewardship on the land and producing a, a truly healthy, in every sense of the word, product, Man, oh man, I think we'd accomplish a lot more. I, I, it's a good point. Well, I just, I just have one last thing to ask you about, Nathaniel. I, I actually had more, but, but uh, I have taken up too much of your time already. But I'll, I guess I'll end on this. I'm a certified organic farmer, and the, the large majority of people in the certifi- certified organic farming community, uh, they're pretty strident about the GMO debate, and they, they're, they're generally pretty anti-GMO. Um, if your overarching conclusion that you made about the, just, just the health aspect of GMOs in terms of human health of their, uh, in terms of their consumption, if you're right about that, and if all of these major scientific institutions in the world that have also endorsed that notion that, that yes, there's a tiny bit of risk, but overall there's a decent amount of testing going on and that the stuff on the market is safe. Do you think, how does that make you feel about the certified organic system? I mean, you're someone who's very skeptical um, and rational. Does right. that, I, I get the sense from some of your writing. It sounds to, it seems to me like you probably, that you, I know you believe in organic agriculture and I think you probably purchase organic products, but did, did yeah. do you think that undermines, does it make well, you I question do. the rest of the certified organic regime when you see them? embracing this notion that, that these are terribly, terribly dangerous for human health? Well, it does. Yes. The short answer is yes. Um, I mean, it, it does concern me. Um, and it, it frustrates me when I I'll go shopping at this, you know, natural food store locally and I'll see, you know, they've got this, um, area for books and it's all full of Jeffrey Smith's, stuff and Jeffrey Smith is just kind of one of the most out there anti-GMO, you know, just really taking extreme liberties with the, with the science. Um, and, and it's just, you know, this is someone that should not be, should not have the support of, of of good forward thinking um, progressive people. And so that, you know, that does bother me to no end. Um, I, I think that the bigger issue for me is that um, I, I want to I want um, the organic farming movement to 
be successful. And I think that right now um, we've entered a period of technological, well, regulatory, not technological, but regulatory lock-in and, and ideological lock-in to some um, sense as well. So it's, it's not, it's not moving forward in the way it, it could because we've created this thing where we have a definition of what's certified organic and, and then you can get a, a little bit of a market benefit um, from that. But, but then I, I see farmers just simply defending that and, and using it as a marketing strategy and not really pushing forward to make themselves um, even more um, sustainable. But see, you're, and, you're, Nathaniel, and you're so to, right about that. And I just, I worry, actually, I believe it's very short-sighted thinking. There's certainly, I, I see my colleagues at the farmer's market really uh, capitalizing on people's fear of GMOs, but I, I'm, I'm very involved in the organic movement in Canada. And I, I don't have a problem with the organic movement saying we're against GMOs because of reasons like we're concerned about the power, increased power it gives to the large monopoly companies in the system or, um, or, or, or a host of other reasons. But I think that when, when, we, when we contribute to the fear-mongering about the health risks, when I, the science really doesn't support it, I think it undermines our credibility. And I'm very concerned about that um, for, in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, it does, and you know, I like just just going through this process. Um, you know, it, it definitely has been kind of, it's kind of shaken me because I, there's these organizations that I've just always sort of like, oh yeah, these are the good guys, uh, trusted, and you know, and then I see something from the um, Organic Trade Association, you know, and it's just they're they're saying like crazy stuff that's just like so far out there that it's it's like ah you know I, I just want I'd, I'd like to I just want you guys to be to be kicking butt rather than kind of um, just defending defending the turf that you have and, and using this you know very powerful instinct that a lot of people have around GMOs to um, to have this sort of temporary boost and in market share Nathaniel Johnson, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. I, I found this all really interesting, and I hope my listeners will too. Thank you for taking the time and um, and having the interest. And I'm I'm glad there's um, at least a few organic farmers out there uh, who who haven't been totally alienated by um, by my only inquiry. only the shells like me, Nathaniel. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> um, take it easy. Okay. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope you will consider checking out Nathaniel Johnson's excellent series on GMOs called Panic-Free GMOs, which can be found at grist.org. Next week, my podcast will feature a conversation I had with a farmer who was very successful in starting a commercial culinary herb operation. And he really, really knows his culinary herbs and shares a whole bunch of advice for anyone who wants to try and do what he did. So I hope you'll, you'll check out the Ruminant Podcast for that next week. And in the meantime, I hope you'll consider calling our new voicemail hotline to share any good ideas you think other farmers would like to know about. You can do that by calling 310-734-8426. Have a good week, everybody. Reaches, we'll live off 
chestnuts, spring water, and peaches will owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.